You are listening to iFanboys Talk Explode with Mark Russell. Hey, this is Josh Flanagan from iFanboy.com. We are here for a Talksplode episode, and with us is uh, is writer Mark Russell. Hey, Josh. How are you? I'm doing good. Just uh, relaxing here on the West Coast. <laughs> it's, it's the best coast, as I understand the marketing. Yeah, or at least the laziest coast. That works, too. Yeah. Um, now, now, this is interesting for me because uh, I've interviewed many a comic book creator in my time. I know almost nothing about you. That's because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty obscure. Um, I, I haven't been around very long. I've only done two titles. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's understandable that you've never heard of me. And, and, but at the same time, usually that is not a good impetus to want to talk to somebody. But at the same time, um, you know, I, I found your work uh, with Prez. And now, almost inexplicably, this Flintstones comic book that you are working on... Um, and 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 all three of my two partners and I were like, we got to talk to that guy because um, it seems like you came from out of nowhere. So let me ask you, without sounding rude, where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, you pretty much have given the rundown of my entire career in comics. Those are the only two titles I've written. Uh, and I, I came, I, I was a, um, a, I've written books. Mm-hmm. I, I've never written comic books before, but I, I've written a couple books. Uh I wrote a book where I condensed and modernized the Bible called God is Disappointed in You. And uh, then I wrote another book about the about the writings that didn't quite make it into the Bible, um, and it's called Apocrypha Now. And um, I was I was friends, Facebook friends, I have a mutual friend with uh, DC editor Marie Javens, and um, so I was Facebook friends with her, and uh, they were... They were wanting to do a reboot of the 1973 comic Prez about a teenager who becomes president. Uh, but they were asking around who knew anybody who could do something sort of funny or satirical. And it's kind of outside DC's wheelhouse for the most part. They don't yeah. have a like a funny satirical <laughs> comics, so they're kind of drawing a blank. But Marie happened to be on Facebook, and I was uh, updating my Facebook page with some... Um, some um, Frankenberry fan fiction. I was writing these little, these little, it was like Frankenberry and Booberry and Count Chocula and the sort of Game of Thrones story. And uh, she really liked it. So she brought my name up and they looked at my book. They thought, yes, this guy's voice might work. So then they, they asked me to write a pitch for Prez. And so I did. And I'd never written a pitch before. I had to look up it on the internet, like how you write a comic book pitch. And I just found like, like a template that that looked easy to me, and I sent them a pitch, and they they really liked it. So um, so yeah, I got Prez based on that, based on my Frankenberry fan fiction. That's you're gonna get hate mail. Yeah, probably. It's pretty. I mean, I mean, and I I don't want to. You do have two other books, and and they were they're primarily prose books with some cartoon cartoons um, by Shannon Wheeler in them, and they were put out by by Top Shelf. So it's not like you're completely. Yeah, not involved no, I, in comics. I had like a like a I was dabbling a toe in the comic book world, but, but yeah, I hadn't really written a comic book. I just mm-hmm. had a, two, a couple. Boy, well, at the time, I had one book to my name, and it had been, just happened to be published by a comic book company. How did that come about? Then are you actually? Are you are you like are you aware of the comic book world or were at least? I mean, sort of. I uh, I'm aware that it exists. Um, You're in Portland, and, so I, I, I if that's yeah, correct, so you must know book world, and I, you know, I, I, I've read some, but I'm not very, I'm not super familiar. Like I'd never read, like really any of the DC or Marvel canon. I don't think I've ever read like a, like a Superman comic book, all the way through. Like not since I was like nine or ten, or a Bat comic book, or you know, um, uh, X Men or anything. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I read mostly like indie comics. Like I'm a big fan of like Dan Klaus and and uh, Chris Ware. So that was kind of my background in comics. Well, that's comics. That counts. That's fine. Yeah, and I love that. Uh, but that was mostly what I'd read. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I wasn't terribly familiar with the big two sort of comic universes. And um, so, but I think in a way that's kind of worked in my favor 
because I um, I think a lot of my charm as a comic book writer, if I if I have charm, comes from the fact that I don't really know what I'm doing. <laughs> Is that something you say to make yourself feel better? Because that sounds like something I would say to make myself feel better. I, it makes me feel. It make yeah. I think it's something I tell myself to remind myself that the bar is very low for me. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't. I really. There's nobody really has high expectations of me, so I, the pressure's off. I can just. I right. Well, let me let me ask you that then. So it. One of the things that I, f- I find happens um, when people from outside of comics, meaning, you know, you've written prose, um, you're also listed as being a cartoonist. Is there is there truth to that? Are you also a cartoonist? There is a modicum of truth to that. Okay. I uh, do draw cartoons. I've just never been paid for them. Yeah. Um, well, I think a lot of I, people listening are going to relate to that, so that's fine. I, I was paid once for a cartoon when I, when I started drawing, when I was the, like in my early 20s. I uh, drew a cartoon... Uh, I sent into a contest for a, a Chinese restaurant that wanted uh, a mascot, uh, or wanted me to draw. Wanted a cartoon involving their mascots, Andy Panda and Ha. So I, I drew a little cartoon using Andy Panda and Ha, and I won. And for this cartoon, I was paid. Um, I was paid the free dinner for four at their restaurant, and it still stands as the most I've I've been paid for a cartoon. And was it a good meal? It was pretty good. All right, fantastic. So, uh, uh, so what, where I was getting at was, so when you come, you, I mean, you just said how you got the pitch together, but when it's time to write a comic script, having very little familiarity with it, um, how does that how'd that work for you? It was uh, very, it was very um, trial, much trial and error, uh, and I think that shows if you read issue number one of Prez. I didn't really know what to do with the pacing. I. Um, I was trying to cram too many panels into a page again because I was used to reading Chris Ware and Dan Klaus. I thought, oh, right. well, you know, nine panels a page—that seems normal. <laughs> uh, which, of course, drove Ben Caldwell, the artist, I was... nuts. I, I think I—I uh, I, um, he probably hated me for the first couple of issues until I realized how to, how you pace a comic book and how you you don't overburden a page with panels. Mm-hmm. You learn how to spread things out or to get panels that you double duty. And about how you have to make sure that you tell the story visually in, in your art notes and and let the dialogue just sort of complement that. Uh, that's I think that's been the biggest sort of thing I've had to learn as a comic book writer is how to think uh, in storytelling visually, like letting the images do most of the storytelling mm-hmm. and then using the dialogue to sort of um, to, to assist. And if I'm not and I'm not going to keep harping on this, but if I'm not like, have you been? Paid and professionally published every script that you've done. Yeah, <laughs> you son of a bitch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he's like, when we go down, he's like, you have no idea how much everybody here hates you. No, it's not that. Well, because what I was actually going to get to is that you know I've I read comic books professionally for a long time and I've written plenty of them as well. Um, and I didn't get that sense. In fact, if you if you like coming from the early issues of Prez, it was overburdened, but I mean, like I looked at it as a stylistic choice. It, it felt like it was supposed to be. It's this world that, you know, is mimicking our own with all this different input going on. And so it kind of, and I know that that would have driven the artist insane, but, um, but it did work in that way. So you you lucked out, I think. Sometimes I like to honor my mistakes as hidden intention. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's it. I just got extremely lucky. You know, I, I hate it when people ask me, "Well, how did you break into comic books?" Because my experience is so, you know, unduplicable. It's like I, I can't really tell them. We'll just write some Frankenberry fan fiction on Facebook, and it will happen for you. It's it's just a you know a fluke. It was just a fluke thing for me. Well, if if you're talking about it, I guess in in a, in a craft sort of sense, like did you feel like, you know, there's that the adage of you know. Um, I forget what it is, but preparation and opportunity and all that. Like, did you feel like, did you get this? Like, I can do this. This, this will be all right. Like, at least with this, like the story aspect of it. I did, I did pay my dues, not in comics, but I did pay my dues in writing. Cause mm-hmm. I wrote for decades in total and utter obscurity, barely getting published and never getting paid for anything, not getting any sort of large work published or deal. And then, you know, at, at some point, um, I just got good enough where um, publishers would talk to me. Mm-hmm. They would 
going to start publishing my work. And I don't have no idea when that happened or, or how. It was just sort of like, um, you know, just a lot of repetition and just banging my head against the wall. And then eventually the, I did it enough times that the wall just gave way. In what form? Like what kind of stuff are you writing? I was writing a lot of short fiction and like humorous fiction and little essays and I was publishing a lot of it in a zine that I did during the 90s and, and early 2000s called The Penny Dreadful. And, uh, and then I, I occasionally published something in like McSweeney's or, you know, a, um, like another online magazine. And um, but really just sort of like chipping away like 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 most writers do, just sort of like wherever you could get published and not getting paid for anything. Mm-hmm. And then uh, one day I was hanging out with Shannon Wheeler, who did the cartoons and he's like he's a cartoonist for the new yorker and, and did too probably, much coffee man is that the same yeah too yeah. much coffee yeah and uh he's one of the few guys i know who actually makes a made his makes his living in you know the creative economy alone so we, we were having a beer in a bar and um and he was talking about how he had such a like a well-adjusted hippie upbringing in san francisco he didn't really know anything about the bible and i i grew up you know in a, sort of a rural fundamentalist household so i i knew the bible um, but he said, you know, people mentioned, you know, Job as a reference. And I have no idea what that reference means. So I just took a minute and I told him the story of Job. <laughs> and when I finished, he said, oh, that's perfect. You should do the whole Bible just like that. And I'll draw cartoons and we'll have a book. And that's kind of what got me started on, the, on that book. And that's kind of also the way I, I approached uh, God is Disappointed in You. Is I, I wanted to read like the Bible was explained to somebody in a bar. Mm-hmm. It, well, that's that's what it, it worked because I did, I, didn't, I I read I read I read sections of it. Um, I didn't have time to finish the whole thing, but uh, yeah, that's kind of what it is. I don't think that I knew. I think when I opened it, I expected it to be comics, and I was like, oh, it's not comics. But there was definitely a voice that you have, uh, you know, that I could that I recognized from from the comic book work that I've been reading. So that was that was kind of cool too. Yeah, yeah, I think I, I just pretty much have the same voice. I'm I'm glad it works okay for comics too. Um, but yeah, just sort of like a. A, a jokey sort of um, blue collar voice, I think, is what you'd say I have. Mm-hmm. How did that uh, end up at, at, at Top Shelf? Uh, we uh, made a lot of zines. Like, we made a lot of, like, little sampler zines um, of just a few chapters from God is Disappointed in You. And we were just giving them out to everybody we knew in publishing industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, Shannon, of course, knows a lot of people in comics. And, and so he... Uh, got one to uh he got one to top shelf i don't remember if he gave it to chris or brent uh brent but uh but he gave gave it to one of those guys uh, i think chris staros is the one he gave it to because he's the one that contacted us via email and said hey i, I read your uh zine uh and it sounds really good and when you guys get a book written you should look me up and i I'm, i'll probably be interested in publishing it so that's cool they'll do a prose book every once in a while yeah they did that great I mean, one on the vice presidents at one point. That was awesome. Yeah, you know, and that was actually the, that book Veeps about vice presidents uh, is what convinced me to to go with Top Shelf because mm-hmm. you know, I thought it's kind of weird a comic book company would want to publish this. But then when I saw that, I was like, well, yeah, this is very similar. And I thought they did a really good job on the book. The design looked excellent. Uh, so I thought, if nothing else, if, if we never single, sell a single copy of this book, at the very least we'll have something that looks great on a coffee table. Um, and, and they did a wonderful job with the book and I couldn't be happier. Yeah. It's really cool. It's, it's a funny book. Um, and then before you know it, you're writing for DC Comics. Oh, and, uh, and I, I have to say too, the audiobook for God is Disappointing You, uh, is, is if I, if you don't mind me saying so I don't. myself, one of, one of the finest audiobooks ever recorded because it is read by, um, James Urbaniak, AKA Dr. Venture. Mm-hmm. And he's amazing. He gets the timing, all the jokes, just perfect. That's. I imagine that you. Are, yeah, you do write in a certain way that that's that's really like important. You wouldn't want to just have some random dude do yeah. it. Yeah, can't nail that. No, that was the biggest fear with the audiobook is that like you know they just hire some handsome actor <laughs> and he kind of read it in his you know uh, dulcet toned voice, not really paying attention to the timing or where the jokes are, not really understanding what he's reading, and ruin it. Mm-hmm. But James totally got the sensibility. And, and was, was that just a thing that like you just sort of got the tape back and were like, oh, thank God that worked? No, I uh, I really wanted him. Like they, oh, okay. they uh, audio, Audible um, 
said, uh, give us a list of, you know, the people you, you might want to have read your book. I'm a huge Doctor uh, or a huge Venture Brothers fan, mm-hmm. so I, I had him listed number one, and they got him. Uh, and when I heard the audio book for the first time, I was just blown away. It was better than I would have imagined. Do you play the lottery, Mark? <laughs> because... I, I feel like I've, I, I shouldn't because I've already won like two or three times. So yeah. <laughs> I'll let somebody else win for a change. <laughs> so uh, let's talk a little bit about Prez. Um, now, if I, if I I read this correctly, you weren't really familiar with it. You didn't know what it was. What did you do to what did you do to prepare, and how long did you have between sort of when you were asked about it and when you had to give them something? Um, they they gave me about three months. Oh, wow. uh, but yeah, um, I never heard of it, and um, I. Uh, I had no idea what it was, so they sent me like the entire corpus of Prez. I read all the, the all four issues of Prez. I read the um, uh, "Smells Like Teen President" by Ed Brubaker, mm-hmm. like this, and I read I read the um, the Sandman Overtures comic uh, about Prez. So basically, I just did I did my homework and I read all the other thing the things about Prez. And the thing I took away from it was just how crazy it was. I mean, there's there's one where he's uh, Prez is having to take on legless vampires or, or invading the White House or, you know, one where he, he has to fight off an army of guys who still dress like they are fighting the Revolutionary War, which today would work as a perfect allegory for, like, the, uh, the Tea Party movement or, you know, um, but but back then it was just sort of wackiness. And so I tried to, like, make it relevant to our time and to the issues that are that, are, that, are, that we're going through. But to keep that sort of basic element of just over-the-top wackiness in place, too, that was really the thing I wanted to preserve about the original Prez. And when you read them, I mean, they're written by Joe Simon, who was trying to be hip, and he's not hip. I mean, like, he was... Yeah, a, like, 50 years old at that time. Yeah, and, a, and like, a Republican. and like I mean, I actually haven't read those. This is your Prez, but I've read two Joe Simon biographies, because I'm that cool. <laughs> but, I, I mean... That's just hard to get through for like super fans. So how? I mean, how yeah. did you find reading it? it? You know, they weren't very good. Uh, yeah. I will say. Uh, and and the thing that like uh, really comes through is like, yeah, he's trying to be hip, but at the same time, the the sensibility that sort of exudes through all of his writing is this sort of hippie fear. Like, he, I think it was you know he was writing at the time when the Twenty uh, Sixth Amendment passed and eighteen year olds could vote. And everyone just sort of assumed this is it, this is the end, because the hippies are going to take over the country. Now that eighteen-year-olds can vote, we're going to have like a, we're going to have like a hippie president. There's going to be some weird Indian dude who's going to be the director of the FBI, <laughs> and that's very much what I think the original Prez was. I mean, he tried to be kind of cool and, and get the kids and you know interested in the comic, but really what it's about is his own sort of personal fear that the young people were on the verge of taking over, that the hippies were going to, to. Um, Ruin the United States, which unfortunately never really happened. Yeah, I think that that's a nice alternate timeline. It's that's actually re- that's a really interesting reading of it too, because if you didn't know anything about him, that actually fits in perfectly with sort of who he was. What is that? Seventy two, three, something. Like Seventy three and seventy four. Yeah, is it went over the that's between four? That's an interesting time. What was your um? So I guess what what was your pitch? What was your concept that you decided to go with? I mean, well, as you would have described it, I mean. I said, you know, she's basically somebody who gets swept into power uh, because she goes viral on social media during the presidential election, and I said it twenty years in the future, so that the, the election it would be the first election to ever happen on Twitter. Everyone can vote on Twitter, and she just happens to go viral at the right time, so she gets into office. And I really wanted to be a lot of commentary. About, I mean, I said it 20 years in the future because I wanted to be commentary on where I thought the country could go if you know if things didn't happen right. This is where we could end up. So, uh, yeah, basically, people are are tried on Facebook. Uh, they replace all of uh, um, our sort of assistance and welfare programs with uh, with Taco Drone, which is sort of the Taco Bell of the future. And it's just sort of like a, um, a dystopian nightmare of of, uh, of a very possible America, and I think that the most dystopias, you know, are are usually kind of obvious dystopias, like it's dark and it's like a police state and it's brutal. I thought my personal opinion is that if there's a police state in America, 
if there's a dystopia in America, it won't be dark and brutal. It'll it'll look like a Taco Bell. It'll be bright and colorful, and, and nobody will realize that they're living in this totalitarian state until it's too late. And that's kind of what I wanted to Im- Im- imbue Prez with, that sense that we're living in a, a Taco Bell state. <laughs> Is this the kind of stuff that you think about a lot? Sometimes, yeah. Like if uh, you're if you're... Like I, I will occasionally have like a, a social media breakdown. It's kind of a big part of what, what we do and you know, it's I work from home, so that's how I talk to people, but not not infrequently I will think this is this is gonna kill all of us. This is the worst thing ever. Yeah, yeah. There are times that is when I'm reading the news and I'm like, Oh, this is this is how it ends. I'll I'll just read them. Like, like when you just dis- like I read the book and, and it's it's a cartoon, so it's fantastical, but when you described it to me, I thought that doesn't really sound so unrealistic at this point, and that's terrifying. Like I like you've that's in the same way that people are like, this is like idiocracy. This is your version of it, and I've got a, I've got a, I, you're like forty percent chance of this actually happening exactly, and I don't like that. Yeah, no, that was one thing that became very very obvious very quickly, and it was also deeply unsettling. It was like uh, it became harder and harder for me to outflank reality. Mm-hmm. I fight something, and then something even stranger would happen in real life. Uh, and, and it occurred to me that I was like, I wasn't writing about a dystopia, a possible dystopia. I was writing about a dystopia that was, that was occurring as I was writing. Were you writing it? What, where, what was the like election cycle like when you were sort of writing and pitching it? Where was that? Is it? Well, they wanted to, to uh, they wanted to do the reboot of Prez because um, the uh, the election cycle, the 2016 election cycle, was coming up. So they wanted. <laughs> to release it simultaneously with that. But this is like in 2015 that I was writing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so yeah, I mean, I was kind of thinking, I was kind of thinking ahead. I, I you know, I, I had no idea like <laughs> Trump was going to happen. I had no idea who was going to win the nominations. Uh, but in a lot of ways, you know, I, um, it, you know, it, it's like, I wish, I wish I'd, I'd gone even stranger with it because I, I don't, I think in a lot of ways I was, again, sort of outweirded by, by reality. It's hard for me. If I had written something like what actually happened in 2016 with like a reality TV star and a self-declared pussy grabber, like being a major party candidate, uh, it, 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 I don't think it would have played well. It would have just been like, well, he's just being, he's just being stupid. He's just being like, like over the top. It doesn't really feel uh, realistic. But in fact, that is, that's, that is where we are. It is. It's where we are. I'm curious. I, I mean, I know that I know I don't know how familiar you are with sort of DC Comics as a line now, but it didn't it didn't feel like. First of all, it wasn't a Vertigo book. Even it was actually just a DC book, and it's so out of line with everything else they published. Like, were you aware of that, or or like I don't know why they did the book. I have yeah, I don't know either. I still can't tell you. Um, but yeah, I just like I said before, I had no idea really what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, um, I I had no idea that there was like a DC flavor versus a uh, you know an indie comic flavor, or you know that it, like what, what what Vertigo did, what a Vertigo comic was as opposed to what a DC comic was. I knew none of that. I just I just wrote a comic that felt like like something that was right for me. Mm-hmm. Some felt felt natural to me. And for better or for worse, that's that's what you got. Did you ever um, have you ever read Transmetropolitan? No. It's uh, uh, Warren yeah, Ellis Vertigo series. Yeah, a friend gave it to me once as a present, and I just never read it. But I've I've got it. I should probably break it out and read it sometime. I don't. Yeah, know, I don't know if you should read it now because there's a bit of this. It's 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 a different tone, I guess, than what you're doing. But it it does see a world that's a little bit similar. Um, which is really what it kind of felt like. It felt like a modern updating of that. So knowing that you sort of hadn't read it is kind of, is kind of interesting too. Now I don't know if you should or not. <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. Because yeah, it is the one comic. It's like when when I was reading reviews, the one they kept comparing it to was Transmetropolitan mm-hmm. or that or Howard the Duck. Um, I never really read. I never read that either. Yeah, but I can see it. I guess given sort of the reputation for it. Um, yeah, no, the, it's it's a great comic. Like it's one of the. It's one of the ones that sort of got me back into comics, like sort of in my twenties, where, where I thought, "Oh, this is this is really interesting. This is really biting and satirical." And I think you had a lot of those flavors just um, by coincidence at the same time. So, 
That's cool. Well, thanks. Yeah. Is, I, is there more? Uh, there. Well, there is going to be a 12-page uh, press election special that comes out in November. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to come out on the back of uh, Catwoman. Um, so that, but that will be kind of like the, uh, that will be kind of the end of Prez, I think, uh, cause yeah, it was canceled after six issues and, uh, they're giving me this 12 page election special and then it's just kind of on permanent hiatus after that. I had, uh, outlined 12 issues cause originally they had contracted me for 12 issues. So I actually, uh, had outlined 12 issues and I'd written the first six thinking I was going to be able to finish the story in the back six. So there's a lot of sort of loose ends and things and characters that just kind of show up in the first six issues that I was going to like complete their storylines or have them come back and play an important role in the next six mm-hmm. issues. But I feel like in a lot of ways, like uh, even though I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm happy with the work that we did with Prez, in a lot of ways I feel like you know the, what's out there now is like watching the first half of a movie. Mm-hmm. Well, now you've really re- you've really entered comics then. So you've really- yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I learned my lesson. You you got the whole experience in a very Take quick anything. and dirty version. Yeah. And I'm sorry about that. But it led to Okay, what did you get the call or the email that says what do you think about the Flintstones? What's your yeah. reaction to that? I said I don't really care for the Flintstones. <laughs> I I watched it when I was a kid, but I don't remember ever laughing at it. Uh, I just kind of watched it because it was a cartoon, and um, and frankly, there's a sort of the undertone of just sort of sexism that I, I find kind of repellent. Uh, so I said, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't think, I don't really, I kind of, to be honest, I kind of hate the Flintstones. And uh, I was talking to Dan DiDio, uh, and he said, Oh, well, in that case, you sound perfect, because that means you won't be all reverential and shit. You'll actually write something good. So that kind of, that intrigued me, and yeah, he said, I, you know, I, I could pretty much write what I wanted, and I could write the sensibility I wanted, and I didn't have to just sort of like be a, a cheap knockoff of the '60s cartoon. So yeah, that really kind of like, kind of like intrigued me, and that, and I, I, I kind of feel too that as long as I'm allowed to write what I want, I'm going to write my own work, and I can use any sort of comic as just a platform for for what I want to say about the world and about about people. And, you know, just in this case, it happens to be Fred Flintstone saying it. So, so yeah, I, war- I quickly warmed up to the idea of writing the Flintstones. And I'm, I'm really glad I said yes, uh, because it's been, um, it's been so far my, my, the best experience I've had in writing comics. And it's, uh, it's been very rewarding. And I, I enjoy it. That's, it's really, so is, have there been any, like, Ground rules, you are able to do what you want, or is uh, you know is anybody checking the 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 property sort of for? Well, yeah. At first, the, you know, the licensing people were kind of giving me a hard time. Uh, They're saying, "Oh, Fred's got to say yeah, but yeah, but do once an issue. You can't mention any deities. You know, you've got to like you know they were giving me these things, and I said I can't work like this. I threatened to quit. And uh, Marie, my editor, said, "No, don't calm down." Uh, it's like the licensing people just get to say that, but we, but we get, but but we will tell them no. We get final say. So that was the last I heard from the licensing people, and then um, Marie uh, gave me a little professional advice. She said, "By the way, just want to tell you, uh, when you're feeling like that, which you will feel like that way, you will feel exasperated like that in comics. Uh, a couple of general rules if you want any longevity in this business." One, always walk away the, from the phone and come back later. And two, never dare anyone to fire you. <laughs> so, yeah, that was sage advice. And I've, I've followed that ever since. Yeah, but I've, I've heard enough time, stories that I think that's good advice, too. Yeah, I, at the same time, I, uh, you know, I haven't had any issues with it since. I mean, they've been pretty open. I mean, they don't let me, they don't, they don't let me use obscenities, obviously, because it's rated teen. And, you know, obviously, like, there's one issue I'm writing now that's not in the, um, not out yet, but they're in a, a mall food court. Um, but I wanted to have, like, like a Panda Express in the, the food court that actually serves panda meat. And, <laughs> uh, like, a, um, another restaurant that serves, like, just severed feet, and it's called uh, Foot Locker. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. They're more interested, I think. I think the the, the ones, the things they've really kind of laid down the law on me are have been like obscenities and also like 
sort of copyright or intellectual property infringement. Yeah, so let me sense. get to everything else. So I had to change it to Panda XS and uh, Foot Licker. <laughs> I think it. I think it's still going to work. I think you're yeah, going to be I, all right. <laughs> you, so one of the things I've noticed in both of those comics is um, there is a a surplus of sort of ideas and gags and satire going on at all times. I mean, are you? Are you just like stockpiling the stuff you think of as you're out in the world now, or, or were you always doing that, or how do you handle that? Yeah, I pretty much always stockpile stuff. Like you know, I, I write stuff on um, on Facebook or Twitter, and then I just save it. <laughs> and again, you can't waste anything. I mm-hmm. I have a, like a Google Doc just called Random Shit, and it's just like little little sayings or little jokes I write, and it's like like 150 pages long. So. I get stumped or something. I'll just go read some, read that. You know, it, but yeah, I, I totally data mine my own past work, and uh, and yeah, I accrue these things as I go along because yeah, you can't. Nobody's smart enough or witty enough to just waste things. You've got to like hang on to little ideas you come up with because you never know when they're going to going to pay off in a Flintstones comic. So uh, how uh, how did you come across sort of the your version of the Flintstones? What was what was your idea for it? Did it, did it pop up pretty easily, or? Well, you know, I uh, I'm really interested in you know some things like um, like evolutionary psychology and you know um, uh, ancient history and and um, behavioral uh, uh, behavioral psychology in, in in human race. So I thought I would make it sort of I would imbue the the commentary of the Flintstones, like a lot of these sort of interests, like why people believe in religions or why, you know, uh, marriage came to be or why, you know, um, you know, uh, the hunter gatherer, you know, society, why, why, how it was different from like an agricultural civilization and the things you lose when you move from this sort of like small communal hunter gatherer lifestyle to a, a, a big civilization where you don't know everybody you're living with. And I tried to imbue the Flintstones, I tried to use, use the Flintstones as a platform to examine these other sort of theories and ideas I've read and, and have myself about about the uh, early human race. <laughs> Is it as fun as it seems to write? Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, it's like I... Uh, it's it's fun to write something where you think this might not be crazy enough, mm-hmm. or might need to make this even weirder. Um, I I like writing in genres and uh, titles that kind of dare me to to go farther and and be and be even more extreme than I than my instincts tell me to be. <laughs> and and I guess having put some time in to to making comics and working with sequential storytelling and working with artists and things like that. What have you, what are you doing differently now that you sort of didn't know at first? And we I mean, we already talked about not putting too much on a page or something like that, but yeah, sort of how you... uh, a lot of it, a lot of it is pacing. This mm-hmm. is the biggest I've learned, like how you take your time in telling a story and to let the, uh, the, um, re- reader have enough sort of time to emotionally, uh, digest things before you spring on like the next development. And it doesn't have to just be constantly, constantly barraging the reader with images and, and jokes and, and thoughts, but you have to give them some time to sort of absorb the emotional reality of what you're telling them. So yeah, pacing is really important. And I think also, um, like also just having, uh, making sure that you, um, plot your stories so that when, if it doesn't seem like you're, you're completely midstream, if you get canceled, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very yeah, gun shy about getting canceled now, so I, I I try to like always end on like a like a reasonably good ending point. So it's not going to be an eight issue Flintstones arc until you're until you're in the forties. Yeah, <laughs> right. Are there most? They're most. There they've been all one and done. Sort of like pick a topic, do twenty yeah, pages on it. There is, there, yeah, there is a continuity. Yeah, and uh, that there's characters that recur and there's like a themes and storylines that kind of continue, but but they all work. I make sure they all work as a one and done. Mm-hmm. Like the the series could end at any point, and it wouldn't just feel like you were like left hanging. A year ago, did you know what a one and done was? Uh, no. <laughs> it's an industry term. You just used it perfectly, so I'm just. Um, yeah, no. 
Good. Uh, I've had to I've learned to learn quickly. I've, I've learned a lot of stuff. So how do you uh, how do you actually go about sort of uh, how do how do you go about sort of writing and scripting a book? Like like how do you put them together? Do you just sort of uh, do you, do you plot it out first? Do you break it down by page or? Yeah, I just basically bang out a really shitty script to begin with. Um, like I just I have an idea for a story, a general idea for a story, and I just bang it out. And I don't worry about like things like like dialogue or you know um, jokes or, or having it even really make sense. I just get the story out there. So it's like kind of a skeleton of a script to begin with. And then once the skeleton is laid out, and I know exactly generally how the story, the main story is going to go. Then I begin adding in like the the beat and the sinew. Uh, we have like subplots and, and like giving the characters snappy dialogue and and then like um, I usually rewrite each script probably about three or four times. Mm-hmm. And then even then, like when I am doing the lettering script uh, for the for the comic, the last time I I will I will change a, a substantial amount of the dialogue. Just like oh, this could be sharper, this could be snappier, or this you know, there's a, this could be a, this could be a funnier joke if you said it like this. So I do a pretty much my my methodology is um, is rewriting as much as possible. Is that after it's lettered? Because they hate that. No, no, no. Okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the letter it's it's pretty much you know etched in stone. But I rewrite each script like relentlessly, uh-huh. uh, or I send it off. Well, I rewrite it like probably a few times uh, before I, I send it off to the artist, and then I and then I rewrite the dialogue a couple times before I send off the lettering script. So yeah, probably each script is probably rewritten like four or five times altogether. Did it take you time to figure out how to work with something that was going to be lettered? Because it's it's sort of strange at first, and then you sort of get a, a rhythm for it. Like you feel like you're comfortable with that now. Yeah, I am. I'm a lot more comfortable because I yeah I discover things like you don't want to you know put too much dialogue in panels. Try to make the dialogue as spare as possible, and you know you have to think of in terms of how you you draft a frame, where the dialogue is, where the, the balloons are going to go, and so you, you kind of frame the the the, the um, panels with the idea of like whether it's a big block of dialogue or a small block of dialogue, what you can put in there. And are you doing a lot of sort of directing um of the panels or are you sparse with sort of artist direction i try to be as sparse as possible just because i like to see what like steve um pew who does the art for the flintstones what he comes up with mm-hmm. plus i think the flintstones lends itself to sort of big impressive visuals like dinosaurs and cavemen and stuff so i try to like leave as much room for that sort of these sort of like really cool uh, strong visuals as possible but if there's like little gags i want in the background or little details in the background that are going to become important later on mm-hmm. i make sure to let them know it's kind of interesting because i assume that you didn't pick those artists and you ended up with two artists who can do humor and that's humor in comics is very fleeting it doesn't a lot of people can't do it very well and your books are sort of full of them um well, yeah and, and i owe all of that to marie javens mm-hmm. who uh picked the artists and yeah both times hit it out of the park uh, I can't imagine Prez being drawn by anyone but Ben Caldwell, and and, and uh, Steve has just done an amazing job on the Flintstones. Do you um like have you have you sort of studied or learned more about comic art? I guess in your time, because it's one of those things that you know we talked about comics for years before. I think we understood what made art work, or what made a good artist, or good storytelling, or things like that. And you've sort of had to learn on the fly. Like, have you have you read stuff and, and like found artists that and appreciate it in a different way or how are you looking oh, at it? Yeah. yeah I, I kind of created my own sort of comics one twenty one class. Like I read, um, Scott McCloud's understanding comics, mm-hmm. which I thought was great. And yeah, I've tried to read more of the, the, the canon. I've, I've read, I've read a, probably as many comics, graphic novels in the last year as I did in my previous, you know, the rest of my life combined. Uh, just because that's the way I like to work. I like to read the, the things that I'm curr- read about the things I'm currently writing about. I like to sort of just immerse myself in the world in which I'm trying to write. Like when I was um, writing "God Has Disappointed You," I for like a period of like a year and a half, I, I read almost nothing but like things about the Bible or you know um, exegesis is about the about the Bible or histories about life in the biblical times. And yeah, it was a really boring date for for about two years because I Friday nights I'd be writing reading the Bible and, at home. 
And how long did that take you to write? That book altogether took me about three years to write. Oh, wow. Because it was so research-heavy. And as you were... Were you interested in it the whole time? Yeah. yeah? I don't think, think I could devote three years of my life to something if I wasn't like really fascinated by it. So when you were sort of deep diving on all the biblical information and, and stuff like that, like, it, so it, it just kept getting more and more interesting or? Yeah, it was fascinating to me. I became kind of obsessed with it. And I think really, if you're going to write something good, you're going to write something uh, meaningful. Uh, you can't be doing it as a mercenary, just like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll just get through. I'll, I'll do what they pay me to do. You can't have that attitude at all. I think you've got to be more have the attitude of a suicide bomber. It's like, yes, this is, this is what I, my ticket to paradise, and uh, I'm gonna put my, in, I'm gonna put myself out there, literally. You know, I, mm-hmm. I really think you need to like, if you're gonna write something that stands the test of time and really feels, uh, and, and really, really is meaningful to not only to you but to the reader, it's got to be because you were willing to to put yourself in it completely, and not hold anything back. And you, this is going to be uh, sound like a larger question, but I guess it, where do you make it? Like you said, you grew up religious. You you know you grew up knowing the Bible as one kind of thing, and now I assume you see it in a completely different way. Like how did you how did you change over the course of doing a book like that? Because the Bible, no matter what you believe in, is is a heavy thing. You know, it, it's and and you are steeped in it. So where did you end up with that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I grew up with a very sort of, I think, um, childish and, and unrealistic vision of the Bible where it's, you know, the, the infallible Word of God and everything in it is 100% true, and it's your, your user's manual for life here on Earth, which is nonsense, because, I mean, there's chapters about animal husbandry. It's like, or there's, you know, there's, there's chapter after, there's 13 chapters uh, about, in a row, about, like, just sort of, like, like genealogy, who's begetting who. It's like, the, why would God... Why, why would that be important for God to like, like come down to earth and you know make sure we got right? Uh, it's none of that. It's actually what I've learned in writing this book is that the Bible is, is like a, um, 66 different authors struggling over the question of what God wants from them, of what their place in the universe is. And to me, and you know, some of them disagree with each other. Uh, some of them are, are, um, are, are wrong. Some of them um, have better answers than others. But to me, the idea of like 66 different authors sort of struggling with the same question of what God wants from them is infinitely more profound than the idea that the Bible is this sort of just this infallible like, like pamphlet that God just dropped on the human race at random one day. Have you had, I mean, I could ask this about any of these books, like what kind of reaction have you gotten from people? You know, the interesting thing, and I don't know if it's, uh, this is a, probably a little sad, too, uh, I got way more, way more anger from, from people that I was, I was messing with the Flintstones than from messing with the Bible. It's like the Beatles all over again. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can, yeah, I got very little, very little pushback from, from writing about the Bible, but by God, you fuck with the Flintstones, and you're ruining someone's childhood. Did you you really did like what form did that take? Flintstones rage. Flintstones rage were the most common avenues of Flintstones rage. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly Twitter, just because it's easy. Right. Uh, somebody takes you know a few seconds to like to like. But what is it that they were mad about that you just didn't recreate the thing in exact exactly? Is it we didn't just do it again? Well, you know, most of the, I think the 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 hate was before the, I I'd even they'd even released issue number one. Mm-hmm. It was like right announced that I was going to be writing the Flintstones. People were like, well, that sounds like a shitty idea. Well, this is going to be shit. Well, that, why, why? That's to be expected, though. Oh, from really? People. Okay. <laughs> that's good to know, because I, I, it was new to me, and I was like, oh. Oh, in uh, comics, if you change anything, you're just going to hear from all the people who haven't read it yet, and, okay. and people who don't even read comics. So, like, that what? sounds normal, but, like, when it came out, and it is, I don't, I don't know if you want me to go ahead and call it liberal, but it's, it's you know, reading issue four, it's it's a liberal book. It is. Um, well, I'm, uh, yeah, and, and to the degree I get like you know sort of like criticism, it's usually from some like you know alt right dude or some men's rights activist act, advocate or something. <laughs> and and I don't really take that too seriously. I mean, yeah, actual cavemen. 
Yeah, exactly, and it's and it's it's very it's very intermittent and fleeting, and it's not like it's not like I have to. I'm not like I'm Salman Rushdie or something. Mm-hmm. I have to go in hiding now. Well, what do you do? Uh, do you just do you just block them? Um, some, sometimes I'll just block them, or sometimes you know I they're, they're not even directing it at me. They're just tweeting about how mm-hmm. how how awful it is, and I'll just find it because you know I'm, I'm vain. So I will I will look up, <laughs> I will search Flintstones on Twitter and see what people are saying about it. And it, like ninety percent of the, the comments are, are really nice and validating, and people are enjoying it. But there's just one somebody like like talking about how, um, you know, it, the humor is lame, or they, um, it's you know like a like just sort of like a liberal claptrap or whatever. Um, I, although I thought you know it'd be really cool when we do the trade paperback to just do the entire back cover blurbs like people who hate the Flintstones. <laughs> Uh, there's one guy um, who um, probably my favorite Twitter quote about the Flintstones. He he said, uh, "Don't be fooled by the great art; it's just more deconstructive arrogance by Mark Russell." <laughs> I that, thought, is, that that should definitely go on the back cover. That is that is pretty great. That's that's pretty wonderful. <laughs> um, so how, is this? Are we going to be around the Flintstones for a while? As far as you know. I guess if yeah. you didn't know, you wouldn't be able to tell me. Yeah, I mean, uh, they are. Um, uh, I mean, assuming I don't get canceled, um, I, uh, I I'm planning to stick around for about twelve issues. Cool. And uh, now that you are, actually, let me ask you this. Um, we'll, we'll wrap up soon. Now that you've you've been you've been mainlining comics and and like, what do you like? What did you so? Because if you, you didn't really have a a preconceived notion of what was com- what was good comics and everything, so what yeah. did you gravitate towards? Oh my god! One I've, one comic I really loved is I, I've I've read um, Mark Wade's um, Irredeemable mm-hmm. about the, the sort of Superman figure who uh, just just suddenly goes bad one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's like amazing. I think it's one of the most thoughtful like deconstructions of the the superhero uh, medium I've ever read, and it's it's really powerful. I also really and you, like. And, and you thought you, and you actually and I, I don't mean to. Like, did you get it in the sense that like if you hadn't read a bunch of Superman, I wonder how much of that stuff because Mark Wade yeah. is a well known Superman expert. Doesn't even cover it. I mean, he's he's a Superman yeah, I, legend. <laughs> I never read a bunch of Superman, but I, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I mean, I know who Superman is, you know, yeah. I, I when I was a kid and I've seen all the movies. So yeah, I mean, to me, it was like, wow, this is like some of the most powerful writing about what being a superhero would actually do to you. I've ever read. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that was amazing. And, um, and I, I like, uh, you know, and I like, I, I've read, a. um, I, one I really liked, which I'm surprised because I'm not a huge Star Wars fan, but I read the uh, C3PO uh, issue number one. I forget the name of the guy who wrote it. Which James is Robinson. Is it? Yeah, is, James is Robinson. Fantastic comic. And to me, this is like this is what a comic should be. It just tells like a really simple but but moving story with the, 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 with the droids that are all trying to, and they all get killed except for the yeah yeah right and it's it's not only like. Like, um, like very much a, an actual story, and mm-hmm. it's moving, but it's told very visually too. It takes complete advantage of its medium, and I can't imagine it in any other medium. And it's just like, wow, this is almost like a perfect comic book. Yeah, it's pretty great. He's he's really wonderful. He's, uh, I mean, uh, <laughs> they're all listening to me say this, but like Starman, which is sort of his magnum opus, sixty issue, whatever. Um, tell somebody at DC to send you that. Cause it's, oh yeah, uh, I would love to. It really deals with that that deconstruction of the superhero. It's a, it's a I don't even want to explain it very much, but that's really great. And then the other thing that he just did was was a four or five issue miniseries with image called Airboy, um, which is honestly like one of the greatest comics I've read in the last ten years. Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. Recommendations. I'll definitely check those out. Yep, he's he's got it. Not everything he does is is wonderful, but when he does something great, like it's it's apparent. Yeah, well, he's definitely deserved a big follow up read for me because I, I loved what he did. That's that's funny. That's such a random issue. That was actually that was the, what our show is. We do a pick of the week, so every week one of us picks the has a chance to pick the the best thing, and that was actually a pick of the week one week. Yeah, that was so weird because I, you know, I don't really care about Star Wars, but it was just the idea that they're going to do a comic just about C-3PO. And I, I started thumbing through it, the, the, the comic store. I thought, this, is, this actually looks really good. 
see, I bought it, and I totally was not disappointed. It, That's cool. it was great. So what do you what do you want to do now? What do you, what would you like to do next? Uh, I, I pitched something to DC that um, looks like it, it will probably get greenlit, which I can't really go into sure. uh, until they announce it. But that that will probably be the next thing. I've also written a story um, about the um, the first manned mission to Mars, about a terminally ill man being sent to Mars because there's an oil discovery on Mars, and so they need someone to to, to claim the oil on behalf of their corporation. So they send a terminally ill man so they don't have to bring him back. And um, and the whole story's told kind of hit through his diary. Um, so I, I, I'm really hoping to like do something with that. Probably I'm hoping to like maybe do it like sort of a creator-owned label like. Mm-hmm image or vertigo or something but that's probably my next big project cool well uh i look forward to that anyway um i think that i, I don't think i can pull out any more questions i probably could but uh we're, we're both uh, <laughs> we've got stuff to do uh it was really fun talking to you and uh i'm really enjoying the work i i would have never known that you had so little experience with comic books so that's really cool great well thanks i'm glad i'm glad i fooled you into thinking i know what i'm doing you bastard uh, but yeah it's been great talking to you josh and that is all for this episode of iFanboys Talk Explode. I want to thank Mark Russell for coming on and talking to us. And you can get over to iFanboy.com. You can comment on this. And you can see all of the other stuff that we have done over the many, many years. These shows are made possible by iFanboy patrons. Uh, if you go over to iFanboy.com slash support, you will find a link to our Patreon campaign, which uh, reached a certain level. And we said we would bring back the Talk Explode, which is the interview podcast, and the Book Explode, which is the in-depth uh, comic discussion show where you talk about sort of one graphic novel or trade or something like that um so get over there uh become part of this whole thing and help support it and for the people who did thanks very much and that will do for now we will see you of course on the weekly pick of the week podcast and 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 other stuff that there's lots of stuff that happens all right thanks (laughs) 